My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hi, and welcome to the KingCast, a show by Stephen King obsessives for Stephen King obsessives. My name is Eric Vespi, and I'm joined, as always, by my wickedly smart and sharply dressed co-host, Scott Wampler. That's your kid. Oh, yeah, that's me. I, I stopped paying attention when I heard the descriptors, because that is not me, sir. Uh, well, not now. We're, we're in COVID times. <laughs> Nobody's sharply dressed. Yeah, no, I'm, in, I'm in fucking pajamas right now. Always. <laughs> well, our guest today is no stranger to Stephen King fans. He's a director whose batting average Helming King adaptations is up there with Frank Darabont and Rob Reiner. You know him as the man behind The Haunting of Hill House, Oculus, Hush, and of course, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. I'm pleased to welcome Mike Flanagan onto the show. Hello. Yes. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, so we're happy to have you. You are one of our most requested guests. I will have you know. Well, this is one of my favorite podcasts, so I'm I'm just thrilled to to be with you, gentlemen. Well, we are we are humbled Ooh. to hear. That. I'm humbled to hear that. I don't know about yeah. Eric. You know, he's it, tell, tell us more about how great we are. Completely out of control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hold on. I got to get a new set of headphones because my my head's expanding too much right now. But all right, you got to readjust. All right, there we go. We're better. So we wanted, uh, of course, y- your voice on the show uh, is very important. You know, I wasn't kidding when I said your uh, King batting average is is up there with the greats. I, I believe now you, you are t- tied with uh, Rob Reiner, who had two fantastic King uh, adaptations, and Darabont's got three by my count. Yeah, if you don't count his uh, short adaptation, right? That's right. So. Yes. I, I have a little list up on the wall. I'm counting for you, Darabont. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would point yeah. out though that uh, you know I think this is an important distinction is that the king properties Mike has brought to the screen should not have worked on screen and he made them work and in fact in my opinion improved upon them whereas I think Frank took uh properties that you know missed Shawshank Redemption I can look at those and say I can see how that would work as a movie so I as much as I love uh, Frank Darabont's work, I, I, I think I got to give Mike a little bit of an edge here because he really pulled off a couple miracles in a row. Oh, that, that's incredibly generous of you. I, I, I don't know what to say to that, I, I, but, I, but I'm very grateful. Um, you, I'm, I'm just lucky did, to play in the sandbox, you know? How did you even get the nerve to make a Gerald's Game movie? Like, I, I, <laughs> I, like you read Gerald's Game and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to put this on screen. Like... Can you can you just yeah. briefly talk about uh, the 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 size of the cojones you must have to have ever thought that that was a a, a good idea? <laughs> I I uh, you know I read it in college I think so it started with the folly of youth really I, I, when I when I first read the book it it had kind of burrowed in deeper and and more viscerally than than even the other King books which I was you know ravenously consuming at the time. And I just remember I, I put it down and I thought like that was incredible and it's unadaptable. It's it's impossible yes. to to make it. And for years and years I would just always chew on that. I, there was something about there was something about the challenge of it that was attractive at first. Um and then, you know, I I <laughs> I, I was just never smart enough to put it down. Um and I figured if if you if I was ever gonna get a chance to to take a swing at a Stephen King adaptation, which at the time in my life seemed impossible. I mean, it seemed completely unlikely that, you know, why not 
take a really big and ambitious swing. And so that one just always was, was always in my bag. Like whenever I, I would take general meetings, when I moved to LA, I would bring it with me. And, you know, it, it well, I think I was, <laughs> and a bit everyone was like, absolutely was, not. <laughs> yeah. Everybody said, fuck no. Like they, they were like, this is um, this, if they knew the book, they were like, it's not adaptable. And if they didn't know the book, I'd barely get, you know, a minute into trying to pitch it to them. And they'd say, that's not a movie. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they were, they were correct actually. And in, in, in the way it was written, they were completely right. So I, I think it was, I, yeah, I, I there, there's a strange kind of youthful delusional quality that I that I think of when I think back on that time before it happened, and then by the time it came together, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how, to this day how we got that movie off the ground. It was really Netflix, <laughs> I think. Yeah, like they yeah. they were just up for whatever. Well, there's also the the interesting aspect of approaching that, like you know, you're not going to walk into these generals and going, I'm going to make the stand. You don't know me, you know, you know, I've made, I've made a couple of low budget, you know, I made a $70,000 horror film, you know, oh, it's like, yeah. but now I'm going to take, take the stand. I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to remake the shining or whatever. You're not taking one of the big dogs, but you can come in with something like Gerald's game and, and maybe try to find a, a, a weird, you know, back way into making that thing. That's a, that's a phenomenal point. Yes, that's very true. I, I always had this sense of like, you know, the, the, the big properties were reserved for the big boys. And it was like, okay, well, I, if I keep my head down and go for something no one else has, you know, tried to adapt or at least publicly tried to adapt, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have a better shot. Or, or King might think it's novel that somebody wants to do that one. And be like, oh, people don't really ask for that one that often. Okay, well, give it a shot. You know, like there, there was that sense of like sneaking in the back of the room and taking the book nobody was looking at. Um, but but Rose even matter, then, sure, go for it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like load up my load up my bag with whatever everybody put down. But uh, but even then, people were like, there there were we had this crazy thing happen on that movie where we lost the original actress uh, that that we'd cast as Jesse like two weeks before production began. Holy because shit. oh I oh it was, it was terrifying. Now it the the actress who who had been cast. Uh, we were at the same agency and someone at the agency went down into the vault to get the script when we submitted it to her and they sent her someone else's adaptation. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, so it, enough people had tried to make Gerald's game over the years that somewhere in the bowels of, of the agency was another adaptation that was sent to her by mistake. And she signed on to that movie. And um, oh my it was God. radically different uh, than, than the approach that I was going well, for. Well, Yeah. Your yeah. approach to Gerald's game was so unique to you. I can't imagine whatever that version was looking anything like that. That's crazy. And she read it when, when we caught the mistake, we, we managed to prep together. Uh, she was working on another project. So we only talked like once a week over the phone, but we managed to prep for like a month and a half talking about two different movies. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, I thought she was just weird. Like, I, I just thought it was like, uh, it, we would have these hiccups on the phone. And, and in retrospect, they all make so much sense. But at the time, I was like, there are these weird pauses whenever we talk. And I feel like, like we're talking around each other. And I feel like she's not listening to me. And I feel like she's making these crazy assumptions about the story. And she's probably on, on her side being like, this guy's nuts. Like, what is he talking about? None of the stuff he's mentioning is in the script, but we were both too polite. To, to say anything, <laughs> uh, you got off the phone to your wife, and you're like, 
I, I just talked to Betty White. She thinks there's a car chase in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the only thing, I've never read this other version very intentionally because when I found out it existed, I was like, do not, do not get it anywhere near me. Like, I can't look at that. And uh, the only thing I've heard, though, is that it was funny. And I'm, I'm <laughs> like, maybe now I should track it down because I'm like, I, I can't imagine an approach that was light and, and comedic to that material. So do you know the writer? It. I do. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know them personally, but I know who wrote it. Um, and I guess enough time's gone by. I could probably, I should probably get my hands on the script and read it. But yeah, I'd be fascinated um, if I were you to read that now. It, well, it was such a, uh, and when, when, when we realized what was happening is when I, I had said to her, you know, do you have a, do you have a trusted body double to play Jesse too? And she had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and I was like, you know, the, the other you, the other version of you who's, throughout the whole movie and she just no clue she's like who's playing ruth and i was like oh no and <laughs> and she's like uh, she knew bruce greenwood and she was like i was so shocked bruce took this role he's only he's only in the movie for five minutes why is he going to be why is he going to be there the whole time and <laughs> and then Holy i finally God. said would you send me would you take a photograph of, of the cover page of your script and text it to me right now <laughs> and she did and uh, then we the whole world fell apart. You know, the bomb went off at the agency. Um, everybody pointed fingers as to how this could have happened. And oh, man. I said, "Well, if, if you like that version, you're gonna you're gonna love my version." Uh, and I sent it to her directly, and she read it. And the next day, she did not love it. Um, and she, <laughs> okay. yeah. and she came back and she said, "All of the humor is gone." And I said, "Well, yeah, this is not a funny story." And, um, and she said, it's just, it's just me. It's, it's, yeah. Yes. It's just you. It, it, that's, that's what this movie is. And she's like, what about all these other people that had been added? I said, well, that, that isn't how you do this or that's not how I'm doing it. And, um, and so she quit. Uh, and I, I couldn't really hold it against her because, you know, she yeah. hadn't signed on to do our movie, but, and um, you know what? You ended up with a great movie, you know, so happy it worked accident. Out perfectly. Yes. And it, I can't it, see anybody, anybody but Carla in, in that role after right. she's such a powerhouse uh, yeah. by herself. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it, it couldn't have worked out better. And, you know, Carla, I plan on collaborating with Carla, you know, throughout the rest of my career. I, I I'm so lucky that, that we met when we did and she, she owns that movie. So it, it all worked out great, but man, it sucked at the time. It was really, yeah, it was really scary. So we should probably talk a little bit about the title that you picked here. Um, yes. Uh, my, my, in our brief uh, communication about uh, this title, which you picked is uh, 1408. Uh, you have a kind of a weird connection to it. Is that right? Very much so. Um, I, I do not believe I would have a career without 1408. And the, the reason why is that when I, when I read the short story um, and fell completely in love with it, I had heard at the time of the Dollar Baby program, you know, of King giving mm -hmm. the rights to to a story for a buck uh, to let a, a young filmmaker give it a shot. And all I wanted in the world was to do 1408. I'd never directed a horror movie before at all. Not not a short, not, not nothing. Uh, and I moved out to California with dreams of making movies and uh, someone else had the rights to 1408. Um, and so crushed by this, I decided that I would make a short film that was essentially and what I would do with my adaptation of 1408. But instead of a hotel room, it would be a mirror 
and that mm. is the Oculus short. Oh, um, wow. And looking back at it to, to prepare for today, you know, I was almost embarrassed a few times reading it and going, oh, shit. Uh, you know, I, I made that movie for a thousand bucks with my friends thinking very few people would ever see it. Certainly not thinking Stephen King would watch the Oculus feature, which is what kicked off everything with that relationship. But uh, it's it's amazing to me now looking back at it and kind of being like, yeah, this this story seeded my entire career. And Oculus is actually a very thinly veiled adaptation of 1408, like very thinly at times, if not, you know, questionable. Uh, like, like <laughs> legally legally so, questionable yeah legally is what you... <laughs> dubious uh homage um but uh yeah it's so so this one's very special to me and a movie that i you know a a, a short story i've loved on the page and as a remarkable um audiobook presentation that king read himself yeah uh that i i played multiple times in, in the cross-country move to los angeles and then the movie i i followed intently and, you know, I, I'm excited to talk, to talk about that, too, because they took it in a very different direction, uh, which yeah. is really fun to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because you break uh, you compare the two things and they actually made some incredibly smart uh, character enriching choices in the in the movie uh, when you it, it, and I guess all that goes to talk about the difference between adapting a, a giant King book and being able to expand on a short story. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how much freedom that, that you have um, creatively to fill out the corners of a 30, 40 page thing versus trying to cram, <laughs> you know, cram a, a 700 page book into a, uh, into a two hour movie. Totally. Two completely different worlds there for sure. So the short was uh, the audiobook that you mentioned uh that was the original uh version of it right my based on what I looked up it was uh in an audiobook collection called Blood and Smoke in 1999 and then uh the where I read it was Everything's Eventual in uh, 2002 it's a short story collection yes um uh, but if anybody hasn't seen it, or I, I don't know why the hell you'd listen to this, if because uh, <laughs> you know we're going to spoil the shit out of everything. Um, <laughs> but if you haven't read it or listened to it, uh, it, it is King going back into kind of his uh, haunted hotel territory, but he does it in a way more focused um, way. It's it's uh, you know it's not a hotel that's haunted. It's and it's not even a technically a a haunting. It, it's a room that, you know, as Sam Jackson in the movie so eloquently describes is an evil fucking room, right? Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not <laughs> ghosts. It's, uh, it, it's more psychological horror than, uh, you know, spooks jumping out at you. Um, and at the center of it is a cynical author who, uh, named Mike Enslin, who doesn't believe in the paranormal uh, because he doesn't believe in God. And uh, if there is no God, then there is no afterlife and there's no afterlife. There's no ghosts. But what people do uh, is they buy his books in about visiting haunted locations and uh, in droves. So he gets uh, a heads up on a particularly haunted room in a New York hotel called the dolphin and decides to go check it out and is immediately regretful of that decision. <laughs> my theory on this you know the the idea that there's uh you know that it's not a haunted room it's just 
but there's something horribly wrong with it. I kind of in my my in my head canon that room and that um you know position that it takes within the sky inside this uh hotel which is you know 13 floors up and on the corner and all that is one of the spots that they talk about in a, a Stephen King short story called Crouch End where one character sort of explains to another that it, there are places in the world where the reality of the world itself is is like worn down like on the surface of a ball and that you know there's something on the other side that's like super unpleasant and when those when those spots get worn down like sometimes these things interact and so in my in my head 1408 has always been like sort of playing with that same notion it's just it's all contained to this single room for whatever reason that's also a dark tower thing right thinny the, yeah a little bit yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 king loves that uh <laughs> that uh, thin thin uh, area between realities it's it's definitely a cool it's thing. a great conceit uh, you know so mike what was it about the um about the story that that grabbed you so much like you were you like bought in on the the character of mike enslin were you bought in on just the insanity of of uh, uh that's on display because it, it's a it's very lovecraftian in that it's it's more about the insanity versus a monster right definitely uh yeah. the thing i mean all of that for sure and i i love the cosmic horror of it i love the the point of the book that Ghosts, at least at one point, were human, and this this thing never was. And how all the rules of a haunted house are out the window because of it. I thought that was incredibly disturbing and upsetting. But I think what what dragged me into it was the structure of it, because the history of the room is phenomenally laid out in the in the short story. It is mm-hmm. so beautifully told, and it escalates, and it's surprising. It's not it's not the the tropes that you expect, they're there, you know, the, the brutal deaths and the suicides are all there, but there's that great moment, you know, where Olin says, what about the, the so-called natural deaths in the room, which is something that I hadn't really thought of before. Cause you, you always hear the big dramatic, scary walls, bleeding leave haunting stories. And yeah, just yeah. that, you know, like somebody walks in and goes blind or can't stop laughing or, you know, then has a stroke two days later. The, the What I loved was the accumulation of circumstantial evidence that was presented. You know, the experience of reading it doesn't make you feel like you're flashing back into those stories. It's just told to you. Right. And what it did for me was make me terrified to go in the room before I ever, before he ever stepped foot. It made me so scared for him. The theater of the mind was so powerful that by the time he opened the door, I was already petrified for what would happen to him. And then the rest of it is just a payoff. It's just, it's, it's demonstrating what you were told would happen and it happens. And I thought that was so clean and simple and scary. And that history section, you know, we have the exact same, (laughs) the exact same scene exists in Oculus, the short and Oculus, the feature down to the, (laughs) down to the the file folder. (laughs) Like it's, it's the same. And (laughs) <laughs> uh, down to the mini quarters, you know, which we upgraded slightly to video cameras for the feature. Like it's, it's, <laughs> um, it, it struck me because it, it taught me a lesson that has stayed with me through every single film I've, I've ever been lucky enough to work on, which is that idea of painting the picture, creating the dread in the imagination of the viewer or the reader before you put them into the, 
into the actual crucible itself. Hmm. And that was a revelation for me from, from a horror storytelling point of view. I think that's what, what grabbed me. Obviously, you're no right. stranger to the idea of, you know, haunted objects, haunted houses, you know, haunted anything. I'm curious if you ever stayed in a room or a hotel or anything along those lines that was purportedly haunted and, and, and had an experience like that. Uh, I've absolutely, and in a big way since I read this story, sought out the haunted rooms. So I've stayed in, um, I've stayed in uh, room 3327 at the Hotel Coronado, um, which is their big room. That's their big ghost room. I stayed in at the Stanley Hotel where King was inspired to write The Shining. I stayed in 217, which is kind of the tourist room. Right. Uh, but I also stayed in, in 428, which is the cowboy room, which is kind of one of their most celebrated ghosts at that hotel. Is it a ghost and cowboy? It is. It's a, it's a guy who's wearing, he's supposedly wearing a cowboy hat. Um, <laughs> he's not actually a cowboy, but it was a guest who famously would wear that getup, who loved that kind of American Western aesthetic. And, and he's supposed to show up at the foot of your bed. But I, I, I have a kinship for Mike Enslin in this way because I, I run toward those things. And for a different reason, like I, I, I would love, I would love to see something like that. Have you never experienced anything that you would classify as paranormal in those circumstances? I, I have not. Um, and it's not for, for cynicism. It's, it's, I, I would, I would love it. Um, and maybe it's because I run at it so hard, but, uh, but I haven't. And, but, but there was something that I, I connected with very much because this story came, came at a time when I, I was raised Catholic and never really questioned it until until I got to college and, you know, emerged from about a, a half decade of religious study as an atheist. And so I was, I was at a point where I was questioning everything anyway. And so to have a character who's, you know, determined to follow a scientific method, um, demanding, you know, extreme evidence to back up extreme claims, right. all of that rang very true for me. You know, it, it doesn't work out for him. <laughs> he gets he gets the evidence he wanted uh and that that i think is one of the delights of of the story but but that spoke to me too that that was at a time in my life where i was really stress testing the belief system i grew up in and finding it was really easy to kind of crumble yeah but i i, I stay open to that stuff i i really i want to know the truth about the world and life and existence and so i i am by kind of by nature, intensely skeptical and simultaneously hungry for evidence and experience to help me understand. Yeah, I was Scott, just Scott, have you had one? Uh, no, uh, but I tried to uh, once. There's a there's a hotel here in Austin called the uh, the Driscoll. It's down on Sixth Street, and they famously have uh, a haunting in that hotel. And I had read about this online and. Um, I had a friend that was coming in from out of town to visit. And while she was here, I was like trying to cook up like, you know, more interesting shit to do in Austin than, you know, go watch the bats fly out from under, you know, the bridge downtown. And um, so I cooked up this idea of like, what if we go stay in the, the most reportedly haunted room in this hotel uh, while you're here and we'll bring a, a Ouija board in there. We'll fucking bring candle, you know, we'll like, We'll do it upright and see if we can, you know, make something happen. And um, 
so we got the room. Um, this was, uh, according to what I had read, the room where Annie Lennox had seen someone like hanging from the ceiling or something like that, uh, back in the, back in the eighties. Uh, so I was pretty hyped. Um, I didn't know to whether or not I, we would see anything, but I was willing to do everything I could to make it happen. And then, um, we went out to dinner, we had a couple drinks on six and then we went back to the room and like did what we could to sort of raise the spirits or see if there was anything going on in there. And there was nothing, you know, and the room was like $400 a night or something. So it was, you know, <laughs> super disappointing. I'm like, I didn't even get to see a dead kid or someone hanging from the ceiling or, or nothing while I was here. You know, I felt, I felt kind of, kind of robbed, but, um, I, I was just gonna say, I'm open to it. Like, like my kids, I'm just, uh, I've never personally right. seen it. I interviewed somebody at the Driscoll once, um, now, it was for uh, this little indie movie. I think it was called like season seven or something. It was like a, a movie about uh, uh, these people that, that kind of get most dangerous gamed. They get kidnapped and they're being hunted. Oh, uh, I remember that. Thing, yeah. But yeah. The, but the lady, the lady that I was interviewing and I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, but she was the girl that Buffalo Bill kidnapped in uh, silence of the lambs. Yes. And so I was just super excited, excited to talk to her because I love silence so much. And, uh, um, uh, and we were in the room and we were like, uh, at the Driscoll talking and doing the interview. And I mentioned that it was haunted and she goes, or that the hotel is a reputation for being haunted. And she goes, her eyes got super wide. She's like, she's like, no shit. Like, like for real, because shit's been happening. Like last night, like the lights kept turning themselves on. And like, I would go into the bathroom and, and something that I swear I put down on the bed was on the table. It's like, I just thought that, you know, that I was, you know, <laughs> that it was faulty wiring or whatever. She's like, but are you serious? This is actually supposed to be haunted hotel so she got to have like that little paranormal spook show thing uh but but yeah i've never had that i've been in places where they feel wrong um but that that's about as close as as we got there there's a place outside of austin that was a used to be a, a an old mental health facility and um uh the draft house ran like a a late night like uh uh rolling road show there uh, I think it's long been torn since been torn down and condos have been built over it, but it was just an abandoned insane asylum essentially. And a lot of the equipment was still in there and they like had these like it, tours where they kept everything dark, but there was like a rope that you could follow through the, the dark buildings. And like the second you s- step foot in there, you knew something, something was off. Like no matter, it, it might just be years of horror movie conditioning or whatever, but like there, there was just something that felt bad about that place. Um, but is that where they, that's about as they close screen as I've ever session nine out there? Um, session when I was nine, there, I think they, Danvers, right? It did no, same, no, same no. idea. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. definitely Danvers or what used to be right. Danvers. It's condos now, yeah. but when I was there, it was, uh, Eli Roth was showing cabin fever there. That was like, oh, right on. and I think right they showed on. like Madman Mars and, you know, a couple of slashers, like a, a night of horror thing out on the lawn at this old abandoned insane asylum. Good times. Anywho, uh, yeah. fourteen oh eight. Yeah. So, um, I, I would like to say that this is one of the few uh, King short stories that I find legitimately frightening, and uh, it's you know, as Mike was describing earlier, you know, it sort of it it sort of builds you up, and then it sort of shows you what the room does, and boy, does it show you what the room does. Um, there's there's one thing in particular in this short story that really fucks me up, and it's the phone. And mm-hmm. when the phone starts ringing and Mike picks it up and it's like, 
This is number nine. This is number nine. All your friends are dead. All your friends have been killed. This is number six. You know, like uh, something about that is so I don't know how to put it into words, but there's something so alien about whatever is going on there and so deeply weird. You know, it doesn't on the surface sound that scary. It's it's it could be a prank caller for all you know, but it's the wording of it that they're announcing themselves by number, which I've always kind of interpreted as like the voice of that. That's the number of the victim of the room or something. You know, that's my theory. Um, but that scares the shit out of me. All of that. <laughs> or is, a, or the, the changing paintings and the, the menu. Uh, yeah. There's, I, I think what I, I, I mean, I, I, I could not agree with you more on that. What, on the phone, I think what, what, what strikes me about it is that it's so, uh, your word of alien is perfect. It's mm-hmm. it's so decidedly inhuman and, yeah. and uh, inexplicable. And there the other things in between the numbers that it says that are just non sequiturs that are, there's the one who's like, take, take, uh, take shelter when the siren sounds. Right. And, yes. And it's just like, these, these are, these are insane collections of words and numbers just being put in some order without an in- human intelligence behind it. And, and that makes it chilling. That makes it even worse, which is something one, one of the things about the movie that makes me kind of, it's like the, the, the room in the movie is so human. Like it winks mm-hmm. at him at a certain point. And, and to me, it's like, it, it was so scary when it was, when it was so alien, it's so cosmically upsetting, but I totally agree with you. Yeah. The room seems to like, uh, you know, delight in toying with the victim before, you know, the victim is gets got, you know? Yeah. Um, and that is, that is, you're right. That is like sort of a, a human thing to be ascribing to a, a fucking room, you know? You, you talk about the non sequitur, you know, wording from the phone that's also mirrored in uh, Mike's own recordings that he's making. Uh, so the structure of the, the short is yeah. that it's about half of it is, is just that uh, meeting with him and Olin, the, the manager is the manager is trying to talk him out of staying in the room and then trying to mentally prepare him for what's going to come uh, because he's terrified that, uh, that uh, Enslin's cynicism is something that will be used against him essentially that he doesn't have mm-hmm. the proper respect for what he's going in for. So it's going to be particularly brutal for him. Um, and uh, so you have that and it's all very linear. And then from the second Mike enters the room, they kind of stop. And then we're hearing little pieces from his recordings that, uh, that King then fills out like with his eye of God, you know, thing with like, he'll say random things like, what was it like a rotten plum or something? You know, he says something fake that plum is fake or whatever. And that makes no sense to anybody who's listening back on the, the charred, uh, micro cassette tape that he's dictating into. Um, but I don't know when you mentioned that the phone had all these non sequiturs and, and weird jumbles of words like that's, that also triggered in my mind, like what people who would be hearing whatever he recorded in that room would be thinking too. Cause it's all to them, nonsense yeah. stuff out of yeah. context. Totally. Yeah. And, the, and the movie, the movie does a good job of, uh, capturing a lot of that. I think once he gets to the room, the movie, you know, the movie expands on the short story and, you know, it gives him the, the subplot with the with his daughter who's dead. Um, he being John Cusack, who plays Mike Enslin in the movie and, uh, you know, the wife that he's estranged from. But 
it takes the the events that actually occur in the room and makes them a little bit more visual you know gives them more punch for the for the screen but in my mind it's um it's all in keeping with even if it's not the same as the short story it's it's all in keeping with those kind of things it would have been so easy to turn this into a very standard haunted haunted house you know sort of story and i think it keeps the weirdness of the of the short which is is kind of remarkable usually that kind of stuff would get lost in the process i feel like so i think the movie's mostly a success yeah i agree i think like there are nice little touches uh, in terms of the scares and feeling trapped in the room like little things like when he tries to throw the lamp out onto the street and it just mm-hmm. It just like <laughs> disappears, winks out of existence, and then ends up back in the room. You know, little little things like that were like, yep, yeah, they they totally get this. Um, the thing that I like the most about what they did in the adaptation uh, is all around, uh, about Mike's character. I do love that his journey is the person who gave up believing in God because his young daughter was taken by cancer. And you know what, what God, you know, there is no afterlife. There is, it gives him a reason for his cynicism, right? It's like, there is, there is the reason there. He, you know, he can't believe in an afterlife because he doesn't believe in God. And then the ending that they have uh, on the movie, and there's multiple endings. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit, but uh, that they shot, but the one that was on the movie has, uh, uh, him surviving and kind of reconnecting with uh, his estranged wife and mm-hmm. they have his tape recorder and listening to all the, you know, the crazy shit that he's saying. And then they hear their dead daughter's voice. And so what's really interesting about that is that it's out of the, the control of the room. It's out of, you know, whatever, but there's right there, you know, proof of, of the supernatural for them both. And so it, you know, it's weirdly gives him, maybe gives him a little hope that his daughter didn't just wink out of existence like the lamp did. I, I agree with you guys. I think the movie is by and large very successful, which, you know, I, I had my knives sharpened for it. Certainly when it came out <laughs> yeah, in, so. in 07 where I was like, oh, well, let's see what you did with this. And I was, I was just jealous, but, uh, but I think they did a really good job. It, it's interesting now that I've, I've kind of been through the studio system more and, and heard about other movies that have gone through uh, dimension, especially when, when the Weinsteins were in power, Right, you can right. see the scars on this movie. Like it, yeah. it got beat up and there's a lot of ADR. There's a lot of, uh, there are these inexplicable scenes where they're clearly using a double for Cusack in weird places. Like oh, when, really? I when, hadn't noticed that. When you look at it again, like check out when he sees himself and his wife getting the news of their daughter's diagnosis. Um, it's not John Cusack. <laughs> it's oh, it's shit. clearly not him. And similarly, when he's outside and his dad's like, don't leave. And he's like, fuck you, dad, I'm leaving. That's not John Cusack. <laughs> not even close. And that stuff to me and I look at, you know, there are three screenwriters credited. There are three endings that we know of from, you know, from the various releases internationally. That that to me says this really got Weinsteined. Like it, yeah. it got, it really got put through that same, I've heard it from other friends who made movies there. And it's like, it, it went through testing and they brought in people to stitch new ideas and new tones to it. And they probably shot a bunch of new stuff and they tried a bunch of new endings and you, you can feel it. So I feel like the movie's a success in spite of a lot of very kind of market grouped thinking that clearly leaves these little marks on it. Like there's mm-hmm. when he falls through the 
air shaft and lands, he tells a joke, but it's it's an ADR joke. It's completely off camera. You know, he, he hits the ground and as he gets up, he goes, oh, good to be back. And it's like, that was not, there's no way in <laughs> yes. hell that happened on the day. Like there's, there's just somebody who tried to put in a laugh. And that's such an executive note that, that it's like, I, I, none of this occurred to me when I watched it, when it came out, but watching it again yesterday, it, it was, I was like, oh, these, these, you know, this poor filmmaker, <laughs> like I could just see all the, all the, the horrible notes come to life on it. And the movie still works despite that, which I think is right. impressive. What do you so, think about so, uh, Cusack in it? What do you think about his performance, Mike? I like him. I, I, I think there are times when I felt like he was trying harder than others. The stuff with his daughter is terrific. Like yeah. he, his face when he approaches the television, when they first see the, that home video and, and the daughter's kind of folded into this struggle in the room for the first time. And his face is offended and heartbroken and reluctant, but he can't not approach it. And, and it kind of crushes him and takes him out of the immediate, because that's still when he's angry and kind of in denial at the room. Uh, and I read somewhere that he goes through all the stages of grief, which, which I think is true mm. in order in the film. Um, that stuff I that's think works great. There are other parts of it when I look at him and I'm like, I, I just feel like he's irritated to be doing this. Mm. And I feel like those are probably reshoots. There, there's a it's weird a good theory. thing happening. Before we move on, he's got a great, um, that great moment whenever he's embracing his daughter at the end and she yeah. dies again in his arms and yeah. turns into the, like that, that ash, you know, <laughs> that, that crumbly ash thing and dissolves like the look on his face that that's like him broken. That is the ultimate, the room one, no matter what he's psychologically completely broken from this event. Yeah. Um, I think that's an, a great moment. Yeah. He's, he's marvelous in that. That's some of the best. Yeah you know, I've seen from him in a long time there. And, and yeah, I, I really feel like that for him, I'm sure was the heart of, of what drew him to it. It's like, that's the meat of, of the story. Yeah. Um, the, the missteps or, cause I, I, I also am skeptical that this idea, the one, one big one for me was like, the book is so clear that he's in, he, he's in the room for 70 minutes you know, uh, Olin in the movie says no one lasts an hour. They even put a literal ticking clock on screen, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, which is great. Which is like, okay, uh, the immersion of it. So I only really, it, it was, it was whiplash to me when we left the room and I never for a second believed the fake out, you know, yeah. it was like, we're, this clearly isn't real. And that to me was, was the big mistake of the movie because it, it punctured that, sense of escalation and that sense of like, I love the description of when you're in 1408, you're in a room filling with poison gas. You know, I love that. Like, yeah, that all the ingredients are there for this immersive, you know, uh, unending escalating set of tension. And, and they, they puncture it on purpose to then try to kind of pull the rug out again and be like, ha ha. But when you come back, that tension has dissipated. And it's only really saved because of the emotional cruelty of what they do with the daughter right after that. Right. You know? Right. Um, and that, that puts I, it right back on track. I don't think it's a bad idea. Like, you know, I do like, cause that fits within the whole psychological 
torment of the room and to you know part of part of a torture uh, torture strategy since i'm an expert on torture um <laughs> you know is to you know is to you know uh, uh wax and wane right to make him feel like like he's finally safe uh, what i'll say that i like about that is i like the reveal that um and i wish they would have done more throughout the events uh that we see where he's out and you know it it all might have just been you know a fever dream or whatever um or not a fever dream but a, a close call he almost drowns while surfing uh, at the beginning of the movie and and so then he it's like oh maybe the all the hotel was just you know in that in that moment all the hotel stuff um but what i do really like about the ultimate reveal that he's still in the room is how they're peppering in all the familiar faces that he saw in the lobby yeah, right around nice. him, yeah. uh, which is, which is a great subtle thing, but they only really do it there at the end in the post office when they all go crazy and start breaking everything down and revealing that behind the walls of the post office, he's still in 1408. Yeah. Um, you know, but I do like that idea. I, you're right. They don't really quite pull it off. And I think they don't pull it off because it doesn't feel like they got to the end of the movie in 1408, right. The, in, right. in the room. If if they had done like a big aliens esque, you know, this is the finale. You know, Ripley saves Newt. You know, every and they, you know, th- there's the big chase, and she barely got away, and then everything blew up. That's the ending to a movie. And then when the alien queen fucking shows up again for the second the second part of the ending, like that's a shock, right? So, um, but they don't they don't uh, they they have the alien queen showing up again without doing the big the movie's already over, you know, trick, <laughs> you know, well, by, yeah, by they- giving you a big ending. The, to to go along with it, you have to accept it was all a dream, which is like the worst possible <laughs> like storytelling right. device you could use. And so you'll never be satisfied with the film if it's like, oh, it was all just a dream that he had while he was on on a beach. Um, so it, it's it's tough to really hook people along, but they they drag it out so long, like they feel it feels like they they are behaving as though you, the viewer, have accepted this. And the longer it goes, the the more I just felt all that that suspense just deflate because it's like I, I'm just waiting for them to pull the curtain back and be like, "Ha ha, you didn't leave," which they did well. I love them destroying the post office to reveal yeah. the room, and I, I I feel like that had to have been a practical set built within a practical set to do it, which I think is so cool. Yeah. Like the way they did it, it's really cool. I, I just felt like that was the only stretch where I disconnected from the movie. Uh, but it, it got me back because of of Cusack um, after that. So I have a uh, I've met uh, Stephen King in exactly one time in my life, and uh, this movie came up in my meeting. So I figured I'd tell tell you guys the, the story about it. Um, I met him in uh, 2007, uh, which was uh, it was early 2007. The movie I think came out summer. Um, and, uh, I interviewed him for ain't it cool news, which I was a uh, writer on at the time. And, and he mentioned at the top of the interview that he knew the website that he'd been on it before. And I'm just like, one, you, you know, you hear that kind of shit and it's like, you know, it, th- that's not supposed to happen. Like there, there's no way on earth that Stephen King should ever even hear my name versus, you know, let right. alone even potentially maybe click on randomly on something that I might've written. So, but he was saying that uh, the last time at that point that he had been on the site was because somebody had sent him a link to it that had, because uh, we did test screening reviews back then. We would run, they would do test screenings and people would go to the test screenings and write reviews uh, and send it to us and we'd publish them. 
And, uh, you know, kind of as a work in progress, this is what the movie's like right now. If you want to get a good feel on the buzz and the review was very positive and King brought that up and he said, it's like, yeah, I read that, you know, somebody saw an, an early screening of 1408 and they, they loved it. And I said, yep, yeah, I've heard from multiple people that have seen it and they, they really liked it. And he did like this kind of like endearingly like grandpa ish, like fist pump in the air. Like, yeah, it's going to be a winner thing. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that that was that was my uh my uh Stephen King 1408 story that and then then we got to talk about Dark Tower for for half an hour which uh you know Ooh. could be you know an all-timer you know a bucket list thing for me so yeah I get the impression be. that he's he's happy when the the movies are good but I also I also kind of suspect he do, he doesn't really give a shit you know I think he's he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders in terms of you know the 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 text is the text the movie is the movie I think it's nice of him that he always champions them as they come out. Uh, that's that's created sort of a scenario along the lines of like James Cameron championing each new Terminator movie, even when maybe he shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but because c- you start, it's sort of the boy who cried wolf after a while. You know, you you start you, you stop listening to it. But um, I, it, it's got to make him happy when they're when they're well received and and actually. Uh, successful oh yeah i gotta assume he fucking loved the the new it you know the first one when he saw that that's just he did yeah he was he was super psyched about it and he what he said to me when when we showed him dr sleep uh, because i I was petrified to to have him watch it um (laughs) yeah and he he said on the way out uh you know he was like look i really love this but it doesn't really matter you know whether i do or not and i said well i think you know if, if he was still here, Stanley Kubrick might disagree with that. Um, you know, like he, I think it, I think yeah. it does matter, you know, no. And, and my big fear was like, if, if Steve hates something I do with his work, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to carry that with me forever. Um, right. But he said, well, no, the thing is, if the movie's good, people say, of course it's good. The book was good. And if the movie's bad, uh, people say, well, the book was better. I win either way. <laughs> and I, I thought that was a, such a pragmatic and generous way to approach it. it, it, it it's completely true, too. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine the the level of pressure you're dealing with when you're adapting King and then showing it to him. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, are sure. you just are you just constantly nauseous for a few days until you hear from him? Or like, what it what it how bad is that pressure and that stress? It's real bad. It, it <laughs> Gerald's game, you know, I, I'd never talked to him when we sent Gerald's game. He'd, he'd uh, approved the script and sent comments on the script through his agent, but we'd never been in direct touch ever in any way. And so when I sent Gerald's game off, they sent a link. They said he's going to watch it, you know, at home. And I was like, oh, Jesus, no, <laughs> like that's not the way. <laughs> Because I, I would obsess over how to present it to him and make sure the, the sound was right and the color was perfect, and, but I, I couldn't do any of that. And yeah, I was sick to my stomach and I couldn't sleep. And, you know, he also, he watches things and reads things on his own time. So you don't know when you're going to hear anything. Uh, and it can go for, go for a long time. When he read Dr. Sleep, he emailed me and said, I'm halfway through the script and I love it so far, but I got to go. Uh, my son's getting married. So I'll, I'll pick it back up when I can. And it was weeks before he finished it. And it was like, oh my God, man, like you're killing me. Everything you're oh going to hate God. is in the back half. Um, but, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's really, 
horrible. And for for Doctor Sleep, he let me bring the movie to him, so I got I got to watch it with him, which I thought would make it better, but it didn't <laughs> because I, I I sat next to him and in a they I guess he rents out a theater in Bangor when he does this and he gets the whole theater to himself and he brings some of his friends and family, but he likes to kind of sit by himself up in the kind of middle of the front section of the theater. Um, and he gets a popcorn, he puts his feet up and he, you know, kicks back. Like he's just having a day at the movies and he invited me to sit with him. And of course I was like, you know, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this with me for the rest of my life. So yes, of course. (laughs) Uh, and I went and sat next to him and, you know, it's a long movie and, uh, it, it ran about three times as long for me as I think anyone else who's ever watched it. Cause I was, I was analyzing the tiniest gestures and noises and twitches. And if he shifted his weight, like I, every single thing he did in the seat next to me, I was like, he hates it. He hates it. Oh God, he hates it. Um, <laughs> or he did that, that, that gesture you're describing with the fist pump. He yeah. did that um, when uh, Jacob Tremblay came on screen and they said it was number 19. Oh, right. And he, and he fist pumped the number 19. Oh, man. And I was like, that's awesome. And, uh, and he, it was one of the only times he leaned over to me during the movie was when Tremblay got killed. And he leaned over and he was like, that's a little brutal, isn't it? And I was like, <laughs> shit, shit, I got it. I got to go, go back and edit this. I got to pull stuff out. And we, and we, we did. We changed it. Uh, we we backed off. Um, How much longer was the yeah. scene? Not much. It was. Uh, I think when he saw it, it was maybe we cut to Jacob two additional times. So there were two more stabs, basically. No, right and on. we we took those out. Um, In all fairness, it's a pretty brutal scene, even as is. Yeah, you know, no, it's every it's time un- I've seen that, I've been terrible. like, man, this is fucking gnarly. It it was yeah that that was the most uncomfortable I've ever been on a set actually <laughs> like that, that was horrible for everybody, but Jacob who had a blast, but I think it's, the rest, it's, the rest important, of it's important to have that in there as unpleasant as it is though, because it makes the, uh, the true not seem fear. Like it, 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 it communicates how, uh, fucking dangerous and evil these people are. I think without oh, yeah. that, I think without that scene, you're they're they're, probably not as threatening so after that you're like oh okay they're up against some yeah. some serious motherfuckers on this one and you know what'll happen well, to abra if they get her and, and exactly. that's really yeah but before that they never they never heard anybody on screen or in the book right. and and he said he said to me after um as we talked about that that was his only note for the movie really was was he was like I, that that one's gonna hurt uh, you might want to just, he, he said, I know why you need it. And and I wanted to say like, well, I need it. Cause you, you wrote it. I didn't make this up like this. I, I feel like we actually were, you know, trying to pull our punch from how it felt when I read the thing. And he pointed out, he's like, go back and read it again. Like you feel like there's a lot of detail in the book, um, but there isn't. And there really isn't. He writes around that scene. And, uh, but yeah, my whole thing, it was like, like, I, I'm not pushing for this. I I thought you included it because of what it does for the stakes and for the villains. And it's the inciting moment that kicks off the entire rest of the film. And he said, no, no, you, you need that. You're right. But, you know, I would have a hard time showing this, uh, 
to my wife. So you should, you should think about pulling it back. <laughs> Tabby uh, is not going to like this. Yeah. And, and he was right. And, and I, I, you know, I've, I've got uh, kids of my own and, and, and I said, yeah, it was really hard. It was really hard on the day for us to, to watch it performed. And that, that was all just, nobody knew how realistic Jacob was going to approach it. And he just went, he swung for the fences, but I took the feedback and we went and, and changed the scene. And then I flinched at it again, one more time, uh, right before it was released. And we, we cut out one more frontal close up of him. I think at the last possible moment before the, the film was delivered to, to theaters. Um, well, you, you yeah. it, it wouldn't be a follow-up to Kubrick's movie at all. If you didn't like at the last minute, take a, take a chunk out that people can, <laughs> can talk about for decades to come afterwards. Right. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. And I just have to make sure I bury that footage so no one can ever find it. Uh, and, <laughs> and they'll be so disappointed. It's, it's shots that are already there that just go on a little longer. He just keeps <laughs> But <laughs> it's just a legend, man. It's just a legend. Yeah, yeah. A legend. But yeah, it's it's a um it, it's a it's a special kind of insecurity to present someone with their own work. And and that's kind of how I look at adapting him. It's is you know, I, I'm it's it's a it's an act of translation, not creation. And to be able to kind of say, okay, I took this thing that you made out of whole cloth you made it out of nothing but your own imagination and i'm going to take it and i'm going to tinker with it and try to put it into a format that i feel like i know you know at least better than i know how to write a book of course it's like this is this is my format of comfort i'm going to try to translate it to that and then i'm going to turn around and show it to you who created it it's it's a it's brutally stressful he's made it a point and I've heard this from other people who have adapted him to, to be gracious and gentle. And he will, from the beginning kind of say, this is, this is your film. I already did the book. The book doesn't change, which is my other thing that, you know, my other beef with people who complain about adaptation. It's like the book, you don't rewrite the book when you make the movie, you know, it's not like if you pick up the book uh, six months after the movie comes out, they've, they've gone and, and kind of retconned it and made it fit. You know, the, <laughs> the book remains un, unaltered. It's still there, um, right? But yeah, it's a, it's a terrifying feeling, and I, I hate it. But I, I love that I I got to do it. Well, we love that you got to do it too, because you've uh, you've done two great ones, and you got another one that has been announced coming up too. Yeah. We we've talked a little bit about how fourteen oh eight kind of deals with that cosmic horror and uh, revival, very much fits into that that realm too. So I'm very excited. What can you tell and us I, about uh, revival at this stage? Well, the the script is done. Well, the first draft is done, and uh, and Steve loves it. So that's already one one more sleepless night behind me. Um, <laughs> it uh, it's I, what I love about it is you know it's it's a return to cosmic horror, which I think is so fun. Like you said, the the kind of Lovecraftian, otherworldly alien horror that fourteen oh eight does so well. Boy, do they go there in revival. Um, oh yeah, it is relentlessly dark and cynical um and i'm enjoying the hell out of that like <laughs> uh <laughs> you know and and i think a lot of king's work is like this too there's there's a, there's a safety in in the sentimental kind of approach to a lot of those stories and this is just bleak and mean and i like it for that like i i haven't gotten to end a movie that way since uh geez absentia maybe 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 ouija 
like I, I, I have fun because, you know, I, I do, I, unfortunately for, for me, I do, I can't help it. I do go read all the reviews that everybody posts whenever I, I put something out there. I can't stop myself. And I internalize every criticism, like powerfully. Uh, and it, those can also keep me up at night. Yeah, it drives me nuts. But one of the ones that I, that I've seen come out in the past is like, oh, well, the ending's sentimental or, you know, um, the ending gets syrupy, the ending gets emotional. And so this one was a really fun piece of material for me because I get to be like, oh, you want a, you want a dark ending? Like, okay, <laughs> cool. Uh, get ready. But yeah, I, I love it. Who knows kind of what the state of the world and the industry is going to be on the tail end of, of COVID. But I, I turned it into the studio and we'll see, we'll see what they want to do. But yeah. I don't want to spoil a- the, uh, the, the ending, but very coincidentally, like maybe a week or so before the news broke that you were doing revival, I was, I was researching something and I think it was for the show. And um, somewhere in the reading that I was doing, I randomly came across like in the middle of writing about uh, somebody else's writing about something else entirely, a paragraph about revival that just completely spoiled the ending of the book. And I hadn't read revival. It's one of the few that I've oh, no. sort of set aside to like, um, you know, just kind of catch up with later, you know, there's like four or five of those that I'm like, I'll, I'll save these for a rainy day. Eventually we're not going to have King books anymore. And I want to have a few in the chamber, you know? And, uh, I couldn't believe it when I read the fucking when I read that uh, paragraph. First of all, I was mad that it got spoiled for me. But second of all, I was like, "Well, no one's ever going to adapt that one." And then, it, like a week <laughs> later, it was like Mike Flanagan doing revival. I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me? He's going for this a third time? Like, oh, this is great!" <laughs> so I'm I'm really excited to see how you um, how do I put it? Deal with the uh, that subject matter. In the uh, in the final act it, uh, of, of revival, <laughs> it it required a bit of of uh, translation for sure, um, <laughs> but it was it was a bit it was a bit out there uh, even for me. But um, but I think we came up with something that honors the spirit of it and the intention of it without potentially going too far in, in a direction that might knock people out. But um, well, that's the thing about we'll cosmic see. horror, isn't it? You know, because co- yeah. you know the the greatness of of cosmic horror and lovecraft is that you know there isn't a terrible amount of detail to it it's it's sort of the unknowability of it you know and not even sort of that's that's what that means you know uh sort of conjuring the images in your own mind and you know film is obviously a unforgiving me unforgivingly uh literal medium so i'm very curious to ha- see how you visualize all this and i think we're in good hands you know you're two for two <laughs> Uh, it, uh, I, I, I'm dying to see how people feel about it. it. So much of the, of the stuff I try to do is, is all about digging through the, the horror to try to come to some sense of, of forgiveness or peace at the end of it. I, 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 it's something that's important to me in my own life. This story digs through the horror and reveals a, an abyss and none of that is there. And, um, that's one of the things I love about it. it. It's it's one of the things that makes it so scary for me. Um, totally. I I will be very curious to see if if, uh, if they let me make it uh, at least this <laughs> way because it's it's not going to be the movie where you pick up your popcorn and you're like, well, that was fun. 
Uh, so we'll see. We'll Are see you concerned about that at all? Are you concerned about getting the studio note that says like, we need to make this happier when the, the whole point of the thing is, is that it isn't, you know, does that concern yeah. you? Yeah, it, it, it always does. You know, I, I, I've gotten pretty good about digging my heels in on stuff like that. And it's a lot easier to do. I can talk a big game when I've got Stephen King in my corner. Um, right. Advocating for the same ending. A little, little trickier when, when it's just me. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I am concerned about it. I think, though, and this is just a guess, but I, I think post-COVID, if there is such a thing, really, I think we're going to see a lot more darkness in our art for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I do. I, I, I felt myself go there pretty fast uh, since, since this whole thing started. And this, this feeling like the world is just kind of, it's this, you know, the, the beams are crumbling, you know? Um, and it's, I, I don't get it. What do you mean? <laughs> um, I, I've felt this, this sadness creep in quite a lot, uh, in the last hundred days. And, and I, I know I'm not alone there. Um, and I think that idea of confronting, you know, even I, I, you know, I, I've been, revisiting the stand you know uh for the uh, for, for another podcast um, right. over the course of this and rereading that book in, in the backdrop of this like how how not escapist it is anymore like mm-hmm. it's it's such a it's such a bizarre thing but i feel like that that sense of the world moving on and breaking down and and the the sadness and the the fear of that um if it's infected other people the way i've felt it dig in I expect we're likely to see it come out in our in our art for for a while. I, I think that's our our pop culture is a thermometer in a lot of ways for, for right. the the human body for the for the whole the body of all of us. And I, I think we're sick, and I think we're gonna we're gonna paint a lot of pictures of ourselves pretty sick for for a minute. Um, and I think that's how that's a we'll good thing. help look at it. It but it's a good thing, it's though. Important. I mean, it's uh, on you know from from an artist perspective, you know, it's a it's you know you get to have your therapy, right? You get to work out some of the things you're you're working on, and and but but for the genre on the whole, these these dark, bleak endings and uh, stuff is is only good for the the entirety of the genre. Um, and you know, I, I made a, I wrote an article once all about that focused on the ending of the mist because that's a very mm-hmm. divisive ending. Uh, and and I wrote an article about why it's important that we have uh, movies like the mist or you know Romero's Night of the Living Dead or um, it, even something like killing to- off Newt right at the beginning. I want to get that or, or anything like you know Bridge to Terabithia. You know going there where you know they they you know kill off the you know the kid's best friend right you know right in the middle of the movie it's like when that stuff happens it makes all the other movies that you know that are fairly formulaic it gives them a little sense of danger because nothing's guaranteed the happy ending's not guaranteed uh because you saw in this movie you saw in the mist you know they did everything right and they played by all the right rules and who you know the one who uh who goes out and you know uh, recklessly to go save her kids she makes it 
you know, but the, uh, you know, but the hero of the story who did everything right and was nice and kind and helpful, uh, pays the price for it, you know, and, and that, um, you know, having those curveballs every once in a while makes the rest of the stuff you see dangerous. It makes it not certain that, you know, that they're going to get together and live happily ever after in the end. You know, it it only just occurred to me hearing you say that one of the, something that I think is so amazing about the difference between the ending of the book and the ending of this movie, because you can argue that the movie has, uh, the movie has a sad ending because Mike dies and the book has a happy ending because Mike survives. Right. Except it's completely reversed because yeah. The, the book, he survives to find that there is no hope, no safety. He is haunted and, and damaged by his experience in the room forever and can't sleep at night because that horrible voice is coming through the walls and he can't look at a sunset, the most beautiful thing in the world, <laughs> you know, without being horrified and nauseated. So he survives, but is in the living hell. And in the movie, he dies, but has been given this implied reconnection with his daughter, a, a piece to the grief that he was in. Even, you know, his wife says it when they bury him. So, well, at least they're together. <laughs> like, it's just kind of yeah. like that worked out for him. It, it's such a counterintuitive way to look at a happy and, and a sad ending. And, and I think that that fascinates me that like wh- whether a character lives or dies at the end of a movie or a book is only happy or sad depending on what that cosmic truth is around them, whether there's hope and love or not. And I, I think this is a really fascinating kind of example of how to, how to kill somebody in a good way, <laughs> in an uplifting <laughs> way, uh, and how to let a character survive in a horrific way. It's a really neat you know, contradiction. I like it. Yeah, I I think before we wrap up, we should probably touch on the various endings of the movie. Uh, we've mentioned a couple now. There's one where he survives and he, he and his ex-wife, um, you know, hear the voice of their daughter on the recorder. There's one where he doesn't make it out. And uh, at the funeral, Sam Jackson shows up with with the recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, to try to give it to the to to the wife, and she doesn't want it. And then you have a scare moment in the car where where Olin himself is listening to the tapes and sees the burnt, you know, Abu, you know, in the the rearview mirror or whatever of of uh of Mike all burnt up. Clearly not jumping out Cusack, too. <laughs> um, yeah, some guy. They have obscured some the makeup dude. so much and put a wig on to be like, see, it's him. But yeah. When, when I watched it again on iTunes, that was the one that was there. Though there are, right. I, I read there are two more. And yes, the, the survival listening to the tape one that you described. Uh, and yeah. then that's the one I remember one. from theatrical. I thought so too. And I was surprised last night when I was watching it and was like, oh, huh, huh. he's dead. Because I, um, I watched the director's, <laughs> I watched the director's cut last night, and it had the uh, the burnt the burnt ending on it. I thought that maybe that was the the switcheroo, but I mean, it, it's kind of hard to to keep track of all this stuff. There, there's even totally. like an in, in, insinuation from the director that that there were multiple endings that were going to be shown in different places. So to give the like, and this is a fascinating idea that I don't think you can get away with, but like to clue up a movie like this, if you wanted yeah. to make it like clue and make a movie that's the psychologically uh, weird and, and affecting, you know, to have different versions being played uh, at different times to, you know, affect put the viewer in that mindset of what they're, 
you know, they're not, they're seeing random stuff that's unexpected too is fascinating. But I, I, I think there's like an MPAA rule where you can't have like multiple cuts of a movie playing at once now or something. What a bummer. Cause that's a great concept. Like in, right. in theory, that's really awesome. And especially for a movie like this where, you know, like, cause then the, then the disc- people would be like, yeah. And then this happened at the end and they're like, that's not what I saw. I saw this, you know, and then it's recreating, yeah. you know. That experience that would be awesome. Yeah, it's really almost cool. worth writing a movie with that in mind. <laughs> I wonder, right? I, I'm going to find out what this rule is and see if we can actually do that because that'd yeah. be really cool. Funnily enough, I heard it from Frank Darabont when I interviewed him about the mist. Uh, yeah. We were talking about the black and the black and white cut, and uh, he was saying that he really was pushing for. Um, like art houses, like maybe a dual release where the black and white cut or version would be out in art houses. And, and, uh, and he said the MPAA like instantly blocked it saying that there can't be two ve- di- uh, differing versions of, of, of a movie out Ugh. of the same movie out for some fucking reason. Yeah, so fucking maybe that's all changed. That's over 10 years ago, but uh, terrible rule. Um, yeah, but Netflix uh, is definitely something that could take advantage of, of that yeah. branching stuff too. Yeah. Do it regionally you know, instead of you making you know? the choice. Yeah, yeah. Have the have the have the ending split off like an East Coast West Coast thing. You know, <laughs> Canada overseas, all that shit. That would be really wild. Yeah, I wonder if you could even randomize it. Like it just it rolls Probably. dice for you, and and you could watch the movie twice in two weeks and see two different films without you talk to yeah. talk to Charlie Brooker. I bet he has some thoughts on that. That'd be pretty cool. Well, any final uh, thoughts on fourteen oh eight? Uh, I, I, the only thing I would like to add in before we, we break off is, uh, uh, it's great seeing Tony Shalhoub in the movie. Uh, it's great seeing uh, Tony he's in it it for like three minutes. I wish he was in it more. Uh, but well, what's interesting since this movie is so focused on being in the room that there's not a lot of room for, uh, uh, other characters. And so when they do pop up, they're very interesting people like Isaiah Whitlock jr. As the mm-hmm. repair guy that shows up yeah, from the wire. That was great. Yeah. And that is such a fucking great scene where he won't he's even like, come in the room. Yeah. He won't yeah. go in the room. Yeah. He, 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 like any, any idiot can, can fix that. Just pull the thing off. And like uh, my, what I love about that scene is there's that whole thing where they, he finally fixes the air conditioning and he turns around to thank him and the dude's just fucking gone. And you just see the very edge of him, like getting the fuck out of that, that floor as quickly as he can. Yeah. It's like, I, cause that, all that does is expand the, the world. Like everybody working there knows about that room. Everybody doesn't want anything to do with it. And you know, those little, those little moments, you know, really add to the uh to the mystique of the whole thing i think totally it's 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 really cool to 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 have this kind of conversation about the the book and the movie with you guys and and it's really it's neat and uh like i said at the beginning kind of embarrassing to see to see the um to see the clear impact this story has had <laughs> on me and and on the, my early career in a pretty pretty transparent way so well it worked I, it worked out, yeah. It worked great, but I, I'm I'm uh, really really tickled to be able to to talk about it. So thanks for thanks for giving me the chance. Yeah, all, well, you're all, you're always welcome. Is there anything you want to plug before we let you go? You want to talk about the or direct people to that uh, stand thing that you're doing with Bresnik? Yes, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, the stand podcast, the the company of the mad. Um, we just uh, I think we we just recorded our second episode, but we're doing. Uh, 200 pages of the stand once a month, like a book club. And uh, 
and you know uh, and just kind of having a little round table on it but yeah it's anthony bresnikan and jason c Crest put together and tanana reeve do who's a phenomenal author and has so many kind of fascinating insights into this story because she's written similar stories herself and was influenced by this dance so it's a, it's a great group and it's been insane to see how the world like has made at least the first 200 pages of the stand you kind of shrug it away it just feels kind of like well yeah I put the book down and turn on the news and it's except for the <laughs> you know except for the walking dude it's all about the same have you but, seen um, anything from he, the uh, there's nothing saying he's not out there have you seen sure. anything from the new series josh Boone's i movie? haven't I, I've only seen the, you know, the, uh, I think Bresnikan actually put them out, the, those, yeah, those early the stills. stills. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm beyond excited to, to see what they did with it. Um, they were shooting in Vancouver right before I uh, abandoned ship on, on my show up there. So they, they had just wrapped and I, I flew back. I was sitting, um, I was sitting uh, right in front of James Marsden on the flight back to LA. Um, and so tempted just to kind of fan out and ask him questions, but I, 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 uh, I can never do that well. Ever since I made a total ass of myself by talking to Kurt Russell on a flight, I can never, I just can't. <laughs> I, I, I hide. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we, and, we have to hear the, more of this Kurt Russell story. What'd you do? Oh God! So I'm I'm on I'm on a flight uh, heading to uh, to Vancouver actually to start Bly Manor, and. Um, I'm sitting there and on to the plane walks Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and, and behind them, uh, Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. And so I, I have my fanboy, you know, that, that, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God kind of moment. But I, I play it cool. I think. Uh, and then Goldie Hawn sits next to me because they're not sitting together uh, because of, I guess, however they booked their tickets and Kurt Russell's a little surprised to find out they're not sitting together. Um, and so I do the thing you do, which is I offer to, to get up and, and change seats. So Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn can sit together. <laughs> and, and so then I'm saying, well, now I have this story for the rest of my life. Like I have, I have the moment that I, I allowed Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn to sit together on a plane. This is going to be awesome. Um, and everything just got lost in translation. And I said, you know, I'm happy to, to get up. And then, you know, uh, I got up and she scooted in and sat at the window and I stood in the aisle across from him and we both just stared at each other. <laughs> and he gestured to me, uh, like, go, go ahead and sit back down. And I was like, oh, no, no, I, I moved so you could sit here. And, he, and he, oh, oh, he thought I was just letting her sit by the window, I guess. And so we kind of scooted past each other and I took his seat and he sat next to Goldie, but he'd left his passport uh, <laughs> on my seat. <laughs> Uh, and so, so you got a souvenir to, is what you're saying. Yeah. So then I'm sitting there and I'm holding, I'm holding Kurt Russell's passport, but I'm too scared to be like, excuse me, I have your passport. So I'm just holding it. Um, and I didn't know what to say. And, uh, finally I managed to get him the passport. The flight went off uneventfully. And, um, at the end of it, it's time to deplane and everybody stands up and I stand up and I look and Ted Danson's directly behind me. Kurt Russell and Goldie are in front of me. And we all stood up to get ready to leave and they didn't open the door. Like it's that thing where you just sit there for like 10 minutes and they didn't explain why. Right. They were all just standing there. And Goldie Hawn looks at me and says, thanks again for changing seats. And I say, no problem. And then I let 10 seconds of silence go by. And then I say, I'm happy to do it. 
And I let another 10 seconds of silence. <laughs> and then I say, I'm a big fan, so it's a pleasure. Let that go. And Kurt Russell smirks and says, oh, but, you know, you wouldn't move seats for, say, Ted Danson. So I turn around and Ted Danson's about a foot and a half away from my face. And he's just looking at me like, uh, huh? You know, and I think I'm piggybacking onto Kurt Russell's joke. And he's a very funny man. So I say, are you kidding? No way. Not for Ted Danson. And he just looks at me and I'm trying to come up with what I can say next that's going to save it because he didn't even crack a smile. And so the only thing I could come up with was to say his own name to him again. Oh I just God. looked at him and said, Ted Danson. <laughs> All right. Oh just nothing. Um, so I turned back to Goldie Hawn, who's clearly feeling sorry for me at this point. And she says, so what are you doing in Vancouver? And I think this is the, this is the moment. This is where I can clear up this whole misunderstanding and say, I work in the industry that you work in. I'm in Vancouver to direct uh, a TV show. Um, I am not the idiot that you guys think I am. Uh, I'm a different idiot. I'm an idiot who's also in show business and we can, we can talk about it a little and we can be friends and maybe work together. Uh, and I say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm here for work. And then I leave it at that because I don't <laughs> want to, I don't, then, I, then I'm thinking, oh, I can't just go talk. Like, what am I going to say? Like, I'm doing, have you ever heard of the haunting of uh, Hill House? So I, I just freeze there and she, <laughs> uh, and she kind of stares at me and nods and then starts to make some more small talk. And she's like, oh, you know, my, my son was up here working on something and was, loves the city. And I say something about the city being cool. Kurt Russell at this point is just rolling his eyes and looking at Ted Danson, like save me. And then it's almost time to deplane and I can hear them outside the door getting ready to open it finally. And I'm like, this is my last chance. I need to salvage this. So then I say, yeah, I'm working on a TV show here in Vancouver and nothing. So that just drops like a lead balloon. At this point, I feel like kind of everybody else in line is having the same experience that I'm having. Just, you know, feeling like this is this could not have gone worse. And then they open the door and the walk through Vancouver Airport takes about uh, <laughs> uh, about 12 minutes. And I know this because I was walking about three feet behind them the entire time. And all I wanted to do was stop walking so that they could get far enough away that they wouldn't turn back and see this weird guy from the plane is now just lurking three feet behind them. And so I kept slowing down, but then I thought that looked weird to the people behind me. So I'd speed back up to try to get back to my spot in the, in the flow of people. And it was a disaster. It was horrible. I felt so embarrassed by it by the end that I tweeted about it and just said, oh, shit. Like, I just completely ate my whole leg on this flight, you know, just trying to say that I'm a fan of, uh, of Kurt Russell. Uh, and it turned out that Netflix, he was he was there to shoot this, you know, the Christmas movie, the Santa Claus movie. That the he Santa movie, Netflix. yeah. Yeah. And they didn't know where he was. <laughs> I guess Netflix didn't know where, where he was. And they'd been looking for him. And I ratted him out by putting it on Twitter. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. the one thing that I know about my Twitter feed is that Netflix pays attention to it. Because uh, they should. We work together on a lot of things. And they need to monitor what I do and don't say about things in public. And so Netflix was made aware <laughs> of Kurt Russell's 
flight because they read my tweet. And I'm now convinced that if he got any grief from them, like I in in just by giving up my seat and being me, I managed to like ruin Kurt Russell's day. Sounds like um, you nailed it, dude. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah, it, a- it has stuck with me forever. Now you now what you do is reach out to him to play the lead in revival. That's right. <laughs> and um I, I've I've been wondering about that. Like what because I would love nothing more than to work with him and what it would be like if if you know whether I wanted him to remember this story or not, if we ever worked together. And moreover, if he didn't, because of course he doesn't, um, if he didn't remember it, whether I would have the guts to remind him and how awkward that would be. For us to work together, if I if I'm like, hey, remember that weird ass guy that was on the flight with you and Goldie way back? That might have probably doesn't even Netflix? remember it. I'm He's... sure he gets this all the time. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I would but rest I, easy, but still play it safe. Play it safe. Don't ever tell him. On I, I, tell him. I messaged uh, James Gunn at one point just to tell the story because um, you know they work together and and um i was just to be like i think i totally made an ass of myself in front of kurt russell is he cool <laughs> he was like oh yeah he's the best i was like fuck damn it but uh but yes i i still behave like a junior high student when i get starstruck and it happens all the time like it's 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 a problem wow well, not, we're starstruck by any, you i don't have anything to anything <laughs> encouraging that is ridiculous to, to me yeah, yeah. but um <laughs> yeah i i had that with uh with elijah wood too. The first time I met Elijah, I totally just made it. And you gave I, up your seat for him. I we we met because he his company was interested in producing um, before I wake back when it was called Somnia, and and we met uh, Daniel Noah and Elijah and I went and had a glass of wine and and talked about it and I just couldn't put words together. Um, <laughs> like it was just one of those things where I felt like. I've been watching him on screen since I was a kid and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't talk like a person. And, uh, that, that never came to fruition. <laughs> that project. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we became friends after and, and have remained friends, but that was a totally bizarre thing. And every time I've mentioned it to him, he always gives me the same, like, what the fuck look. Um, <laughs> but yeah, good times. Well, now that you've admitted all your embarrassing yeah. <laughs> encounters, yeah. I think uh, this is a good spot to wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. Breakups. You want to hear about some breakups? What do you, what else? Do you <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save yeah. that. For yeah. your we'll save that for, our, uh, yeah. I don't know the mangler episode that you come on and do. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool, man. Well, thanks right, well, so thanks much for, again for joining for, us, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, thank you, Mike. Such good a pleasure. Time. Thank you guys so much. And that was our episode on 1408 with Mike Flanagan. That was a really fucking good episode, I think. Yes. Maybe I'm biased. Love that Flanagan. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and uh, I think we it's safe to say that he this won't be the only time you hear from him on this the show. Yes, that is true. That That does raise an interesting thing that I should mention really quick in that I was talking to somebody the other day who who's been listening to the show from the very beginning, and they could tell that we are airing these out of order. And I'm sure that if that person has picked up on it, other people have. And that's uh, that's intentional. We're sort of recording these things as our guests are available. And we're, what do you say, publishing them, airing them? Um, I don't know what the correct terminology is, uh, but... 
we are hot dropping. I think is what we call it. <laughs> we are hot dropping them, man. The the number of the way we go about determining which or the order of the episodes is really convoluted and like kind of changes minute to minute. So I can't even give like a a simple answer on how we choose how the episodes roll out. But uh, we are we're we we've started off this first run trying to give people a good variety of what the show looks like, like the mixed bag nature of it. You know, but uh, but don't be alarmed if you're listening to the show and you hear us uh, hear us or our guests say anything that seems to contradict something that came before. It's that's just how we're we're doing things. We're crazy. Over yeah, here. I think we've been pretty good about it so far. But I mean, it's been an embarrassment of riches, really. The the uh, amount of people that have wanted to come play with us in this uh, sandbox, and because yeah. of that, we have. A, a great backlog of episodes. Like if we stopped recording new episodes now, we'd be good in, until well into September. So that shows you how long yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, of a lead we have on this, which gives us a lot of freedom to decide like, okay, we've had a couple serious episodes. Let's make sure there's a funny one or let's make sure we get this kind of point of view. So it's not just a bunch of white dudes in a row, you know, that, right. that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, we do record them out of order, but uh, you know, it's kind of like King's work anyway. It's, you don't, have to necessarily read everything in order of publication. You know, it's fun to kind of jump around uh, a little bit. So that's kind of how we're approaching these things. Um, uh, But we can say that next week we are diving into a very interesting title with a very interesting guest. Uh, Mm -hmm. Scott, do you want to tell people what we're, we're getting next week? Uh, Next week is the dark half, which is um, one of my favorite King novels. And the guest that we have lined up for it is sort of a meta choice or, or, you know, the, the guest picked this, this title and in doing so sort of made a meta choice, uh, just in, in terms of the idea of like, uh, dueling authors or, um, uh, how do I, I'm, I'm trying to dance around this. And now that I've introduced it, it may be too complicated an idea to talk about without spoiling anything. But, uh, it's a, uh, he, he, he is a funny guest or he's typically known for being funny. I wouldn't say that this episode is particularly funny. Would you agree? It is not a rowdy episode, but it is a fun episode. I, I would say for sure. Oh, for sure. I love the dark half. I'm a big fan of the dark half. So, uh, so I'm excited for people to hear that one. And I think, um, I think, a, a, a certain segment of our listenership is going to be extremely excited when they see, uh, who we lined up for. Yep. No, it's, it's a guest that might not be at the forefront of your mind, but once you, uh, once you kind of see who it is, uh, it is, of course, this person had to appear on the show at some point. Exactly. Yes. Very is that well mysterious done. enough? You I think that's mysterious no, you should have just done this in the first place. I fucking yammered on for like 30 seconds. I didn't even say anything of any substance. Come on. Yeah, well, welcome you- to the King cast. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be my turn to do that next time. So. Yeah. All right, well, we'll see you guys next week for The Dark Half. With Andy Dick. With Andrew Dick Sr. Andrew Richard, please. Andrew Richard. All right, see you guys next week. See you.